this week on the 10 Podcast, Ending the Stigma, a talk about suicide with Laura Bullis. I have been in the law enforcement mental health field for over 15 years at this point. I got medically retired. My focus and my passion is for the first responder police military side. Seeing a lot of guys that we know suffer from different mental health stuff, some of which ending in suicide, unfortunately. You don't have to explain the job, I already get it. It's a weird job, it's a weird culture. Sism is great, peer support is great, it has its place, but both of those are reactive. We don't have enough proactive things. By the time something gets to peer support, shit has already hit the fan. The views and opinions expressed on the 108 podcast are those of the authors and guests individually. The 108 podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not affiliated with any entity, agency, or department. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. This is the 108 podcast, sponsored by Jujitsu 50. Today's episode is a heavy one, folks. Probably one of the heavier episodes that I've had in recent memory, probably in the history of the show. The only one that I can think of being more heavy is uh, Lamont Quarker's episode from season one, where we talked about the death of his good friend, Sergio. So this one is heavy. This episode is all about mental health and more importantly, police officer suicide. My guest is Laura Bullis of retired police officer turned clinician from the state of Massachusetts. She's also the owner and operator of five O mental health, but due to the gravity of the conversation, I wanted to start today's episode with some lighthearted bits. So here it is. Here it is. This is your 10, eight news break. Seattle vigilantes called the saints of Cobain have been cutting Seattle crime rates down 64% cutting police response times for violent active crimes down to two hours from the previous four and a half, a two year low due to soaring prices of travel and fuel. The United council of person control has requested as many people as possible to stop chasing their dreams and stop shooting for the stars as fuel reserves have been depleted. Staying with business news, PepsiCo has announced a new line of law enforcement soft drinks. The flagship of the line is going to be the Blue Falcon Cola, a bright blue raspberry flavor paired with Pepsi's sugary cola taste. Use caution as it may lead to anal leakage and the loss of a backbone. Also, other flavors will be Riot Gear Raspberry, 10-9 Tangerine, and the joke flavor Summertime Decomp. Look for it wherever soft drinks are sold. Leaving business and going to sports. The Orlando Police Department versus the Seminole Sheriff's Office pissing match rages on again, deciding who's going to be the bigger black eye on law enforcement. OPD has announced a recent free agent signing, acquiring an up-and-coming prospect from Tennessee, Megan Hall, while Seminole Sheriff's Office has traded its entire mounted unit to Minnesota to acquire Kim Potter, recently back from retirement. These are definitely major transactions. You can tell both teams really want to win. I think both additions will really help both agencies become more disgraceful. And finally, in entertainment news, the Nickelodeon station reimagining of the R. Kelly miniseries is finally being produced, and it's titled Dan Schneider is Watching UP. It is due to be out this fall. Meanwhile, Dan Schneider, much like R. Kelly, is expected a prison release in 30 years. And that concludes your 108 news break for this June 22nd, 2023. Now a word from our sponsors. Folks, I want to tell you about Jiu-Jitsu 50. At Jiu-Jitsu 50, they believe training is a lifestyle. Their goal is to provide everything a police officer needs to not only become proficient in their control and defense skills, but also achieve all the physical and mental health benefits Jiu-Jitsu has to offer. 
And that's why they came out with the Jiu-Jitsu 5.0 app. It's the ultimate training tool for all law enforcement. Members get on-demand access to a huge library of techniques for the streets, grappling-based workouts, yoga, and monthly nutrition plans. Through the app, you also have 24-7 access to Jason, the founder of Jiu-Jitsu 5.0, for personalized training assistance. Jason is a black belt in Jiu-Jitsu and an 11-year law enforcement veteran. So go check out the Jiu-Jitsu 5.0 app in the App Store of your choosing, available on iPhone and Android. Thank you for indulging on that silliness of the news break. I don't know if that's something that's going to stick with the show. If you're interested in me adding actual news stories uh, and headlines and talking about it, that's actually what I did way back when, when I was a vlogger, when I was still in high school. And it, it could be kind of fun. If you guys are interested, let me know, and I'll try to work that into the show. Uh, we could definitely add it for season four. So anyway, let's go ahead and talk about some serious stuff. We got that funny bone out of our system. As I said, the theme for this week's episode is mental health. It is suicide, a topic that has truly redefined my brand and my purpose on these platforms. And it's really, I mean, it's its changed me as a person. It's gone, gotten me from being a street cop uh, to now looking to become a counselor and going to school for all that. And, you know, my first, first batch of summer classes is uh, about to wrap up. So cheers to that. Um, but, you know, this topic is very important to me, and I knew a year ago when I decided that this season was really going to focus on um, personal growth, mental health, wellness, all that. I knew I was going to have to have an episode or, or something focused on suicide directly, And um, but as you all know, talking about suicide really brings the mood down, um, but it's important. It's this conversation that needs to be had. It's something we avoid. It's something you know. It's the elephant in the room, but it's uh, it's something that's important. So, so not that I put it off, but I figured showing all the different ways and tools that we can make ourselves better and feel well um, before I address the elephant in the room, so to speak, uh, might have been a better way as opposed to like hitting it with the suicide episode and then going from there. So that was kind of where I went with it. Um, and that's that's pretty much it. So we're going to talk about it heavy in today's conversation, and I definitely don't want to belabor it too much and turn you all away to think that this is all we're going to talk about, uh, because we are going to talk about it heavily with Laura, but um, actually first I want to talk about something else very much important to me. It's, it's also a serious topic, and um, we're going to talk about this topic, and then we'll go right into the interview from there. This episode uh, is coming out June 22nd, 2023. I've already said that before. Um, and I want to flash us back to a situation that would happen uh, two years ago tomorrow, June 23rd, 2021. That night was a very important night in my life. It changed my life forever. Um, I'm going to touch on it briefly. I've talked about it in different podcasts, mostly ones that I've been on, but haven't really talked about it in much detail on here. So I'm going to talk about it real quick. So... That night, it changed my life. It changed the life of my friends, my partners, and every police officer and deputy in the Central Florida way of life. Uh, it, unfortunately, this is becoming an all-too-familiar scene that a lot of us police officers are experiencing and the families are experiencing it. Uh, this was the night that Jason Rayner was shot in the head, doing what he did best, looking for crime in dangerous areas. Jason was a strong man, a brave man. He loved his family, his friends, his music, and his Jack Daniels. Uh, as hard-nosed and dedicated a cop as he was, he doubled that as a human. I remember one of the first nights Jason and I ever went out together. It was a group of us. It was squad party, whatever. And uh, I remember we went to this, like, nice place, like, super expensive. And we're like, let's go to the dive bar across the street. So we did. And it was our buddy's 
it was like right after his 21st birthday. So I remember Jason pointing at the billboard, not the billboard, the sign for the restaurant. And he said to our buddy, he's like, Hey, this is the last thing you're going to remember. And sure enough, the guy got shitty drunk. It was really bad, but the night raged on and whatever. And, uh, <laughs> we, we got to be a little bit, uh, rowdy, a little bit more disruptive than we probably should have been at a, at a certain local establishment. And Jason took it upon himself uh, to run interference so that way we didn't get in any kind of trouble. And that was just who he was. Put himself first before everybody. Um, I mean, I mean, he put himself in front of everybody so that other people could um, enjoy and have a good time. He cared deeply about his family. Um, the weeks leading up to Jason's tragic situation, he was on vacation in New Jersey with his family. I remember him sending me a, a photo of him with his family is on a boat and Jason much like me were wore nothing but black t-shirts and they go with everything. And he was wearing a bright yellow or orange fishing shirt. And I was like, what the hell is this? You know? And, uh, he was growing his goatee and everything. And, and I had never met his family up to that point, but having seen photos of him next to his dad on this fishing boat, uh, they're identical, identical individuals. And, so the idea was that we were, you know, he's coming back to work this week. It was a, I believe a Wednesday, Thursday rotation on Monday, I think uh, Monday or Tuesday. I couldn't remember. I, honestly, I can't remember at this point, but uh, my girlfriend and I were out at a brewery, which Jason and I would go beer drinking all the time or whatever. And Jason was out doing something that he loved doing, playing dirty bingo at a, at a local establishment. And we were texting, we were trying to meet up. He had never met my girlfriend to this point, heard all about her. She heard all about him. And, um, we were trying to link up and I, we were going up to my sister's for dinner. So we couldn't go down to play dirty bingo, but I was like, we'll try to link up. We didn't, we didn't get a chance to go to work that next day, that Wednesday. And Jason was there. And I remember there was a traffic crash right down the road from my house. And I showed up, Jason was working traffic control. I was helping doing a little traffic control too. He was in a spare car. He was probably maybe a hundred yards away. I waved to him and then that was it. That was, that was what I saw him. I mean, we always linked up in the night. I remember one point he messaged me at, at some time prior said, Hey, come to us, come, uh, come 56, come meet up with us at the racetrack. And he bought us milkshakes, me and, and one of our, one of our partners just bought us milkshakes and, and we just sat and talked and whatever. That was just what we would do. We would, you know, buddy up car to car and just talk and he would always, send me memes. I would send him memes as I was coming up with them or whatever. So that was, that was me and Jason. So I knew I would see him later in the night. I actually ran right home. Again, it was right down the street from my apartment. I can't remember what I grabbed. I grabbed something and I left. I remember getting dispatched to a felony warrant in the town. I don't remember exactly where, but hooking the guy up on the warrant, had the guy transferred to the prisoner transport wagon. I'm writing on my paperwork for this warrant. Jason calls out with something. Jason was, um, I always thought notorious for cutting himself off on the mic. So I heard on the radio what I didn't deem anything suspicious. Our sergeant did. Thank God he did. Pulled up his, uh, GPS location, had an officer swing by and we found that Jason had been shot. Jason fought for 55 days. I said about him being hard-nosed. Jason fought in that hospital for 55 days before he succumbed to his injuries. 
there were there were glimmers of hope. There were absolute days of dread and terror and you know what's going to happen. We were all planning on going to a Rise Against concert in St. Augustine that August and I remember seeing my buddy Chris I was at his front yard we were talking about things and I remember being like I I was naive maybe I don't know but I had said you know it'd be great if we can get Jason to the show anyway even if he'll be in rehab or whatever we can get him out and we can get him to the show I'm sure if I go through my phone photos I can find out exactly when that day was but it wasn't long after that we found out that Jason wasn't going to make it it was my last day on the road with that agency that I found out that news that we were going to lose him. And, um, I remember going back to, well, I, I remember coming into work, getting a text message from my sergeant that we were doing a citywide briefing at one of our substations. And that's when they told us and it being my last day with the squad, they had gotten me a cake and, and whatever. And I was last day with the agency. Uh, last day patrol with the agency. I remember going back to the station, eating cake, watching little league baseball on the on the TV. And uh, yeah, <laughs> I was like, I'm not doing anything for the rest of the night. Sorry. And I went and uh, grabbed my pitching wedge from my apartment and started hitting balls to the putting green in the golf course around my house by my house. And, um, yeah, that was my last day on the road with that agency. And it was, I don't know, less than a week later that we lost Jason. I remember I was up. So I, during all this, in the 55 days that Jason and I got shot, I had lost my sister suddenly to an asthma attack. She passed away. So Jason got shot. I took two weeks off, came back 4th of July weekend. The day after 4th of July, my sister had an asthma attack. She was in a coma and she ultimately passed away a week later. Took three more weeks off to help my family. Got back to work. So after my last day on patrol, I had two weeks of off time and I, um, but still on payroll and I was working in overtime detail. And before that though, before that I had, um, I was up at my family's house Again, having dinner and we were going to do something. I can't remember what. And I was like, hey, let me run down to my apartment about a half hour away. I'm going to grab something. I'll be right back. And I I was in a good mood. Given everything that I had experienced, I was in a good mood. And I took the the coastal road to my apartment, blaring music, windows down. I was in a good mood. Went to City Hall, did some uh, union vote that I didn't need to, but whatever. I didn't get the call from my sergeant to get to the hospital in class A's. Why am I telling you guys this? Why am I telling you guys this? Because life is precious. If something that you are going to hear throughout this episode is that life is precious. I wear around my neck, and I did before this situation, memento mori, and which means remember death. You could leave life right now. Let that deta- determine what you say and do and think. Away from 100 yards away was the last communication I had with Jason. My, my friend Pat was first on scene 
We hugged throughout this entire situation. Became closer. Trauma bonding, or whatever you want to call it. That's a new term I know now. I remember at one night, one of our many <laughs> drunken escapades after Jason's shooting, which, again, not healthy, but I texted Pat. And I was like, hey, man, I, I, I don't remember the words word for word, but I was like, hey, man, I, I know I'm drunk right now, but I really regret leaving the agency because you're a good dude. I really wish I was able to work with you more. Pat took his own life October 1st, 2021. Life's precious. These people that you work with that may even piss you off, or you may like them, they're important. Even even the ones that hide under the trees and parking lots and the ones that bust through the doors with you, they're all important. You all signed up to do a thing. More importantly, you signed up to go home at the end of the shift. And when you're home after your shift... That doesn't mean you get to ignore your people. So, I started this talk talking about Jason, but made me emotional, so you get a little bit of everything. Jason was a true punk rock and metalhead cop. Uh, he once went to a Descendants concert in Colorado, going to see them in Rise Against. Without asking, Jason returned back to our squad room days later with a new t-shirt for me. It was a t-shirt of the Descendants band logo, Milo, as a coffee pot. Perfect for me as someone who loves The Descendants, loves punk rock, and loves coffee. I didn't ask him for that. I didn't know he was getting me that. It's just something he did. Jason was a huge supporter of 10-8. He bought two, not one, but two of my Goons hoodies that I think he's one of the only people that actually bought a hoodie. Um, his dad wears it every time I see a picture of his dad. Jason bought stickers from me. He always was receptive he was going to be on a punk rock or not punk rock cops a drunk cops episode that we were planning jason was a very important person he's very he's, he's amazing when jason passed away 55 days after the initial shooting it broke us all down everybody that ever came in contact with him that's why i currently have and will forever have his call sign three charlie 77 Tattooed on my skin, underneath a drawing of Milo. Always remember my friend, my zone partner, Jason Rayner. And once I get time, money, and grow a bigger pair of balls, I'll get I'll get more tattoos. I have plans for my sister, Pat, and so on. I'm actually looking at my wrist right now, and I have two Jason Rayner wristbands on right now. One from my union, his Rayner Strong, and one is his ODMP bracelet. This episode is all about suicide and mental health. Jason obviously was not a suicide, wasn't a mental health issue, but because of how we handle these situations, it's what led to us losing Pat. It's what led us to have other people make bad decisions. It's people confide in me, people don't. I know that people have struggled since Jason's passing people that were there and I know that my words today are going to people who have lost people in the line of duty who have struggled who are struggling life is precious your life is precious the people around you's life is precious nobody is more important than the other they're all very important to the people around us take care of each other that's what this episode is for this episode is dedicated to Jason 
and Pat, those two together are why I'm doing what I'm doing. So that being said, let's bring on the rest of the show. Here is Laura Bullis. And uh, in case it hasn't been perfectly clear, this is a trigger warning. The following conversation includes graphic conversations regarding suicide and self-harm. So listener discretion is advised. Check it out. We've got Laura with Five O Mental Health. Got to got to clear that out right in the way. Uh, this is going to be a good conversation, Laura. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. We're both kind of um, on the uh, back end of some exhaustion here. I I had a long day yesterday. Didn't sleep well the day before. Then worked a twelve hour shift. Came home, threw a brisket on the smoker, and I've been monitoring it ever since. And you've had a busy day yourself, right? I've had a busy. 24 hours of four 11-year-old girls having a slumber party and all the things that come with that, yes. Yeah, and that's, I mean, you know, we talked obviously before we recorded about how strenuous that could be, and this is not really something we're going to talk about much in this conversation, but it got me to thinking, like, those in the first responder world, obviously we know that sleep is so compromised especially those working overnights or mid shifts or whatever yeah but how you know it's so crazy to work law enforcement and then have a family life on top of it like could you imagine working a night shift and coming home to four 11 year old girls having a slumber party like you and imagine like having to turn back around and work tonight or whatever it might yeah. be like that that puts a strain on you but it also puts a strain on your family too like it's just it, it got me to think like you know it's a good thing that you're in a point in your life where that's capable in it yeah it's not a thing for me anymore but it was when i first got on i worked i worked split shifts and Mm. i was also a single parent so i had my daughter was with me half the time so i would work midnight to eight midnight to eight that second day get off at eight go back at four and then the last night going at midnight in my last or uh, four again rather and then the last day i would always take a detail so then i would get her on my first I'd have my first day off, my second day off, and then I'd get her back. Or no, she'd stay with me that next day. I'd have a friend sleep over because I would go in mm-hmm. at midnight, come home, and then be with her the whole day. So I 
I was a zombie for like six years working those shifts. It was terrible. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even right now, my girlfriend, so she has split custody with her daughter also. And the way our work rotation works is you work two on, two off, and then every other three-day weekend you're on. So, for example, this three-day weekend we're off. We have the same schedule. And then we would work Monday, Tuesday, off Wednesday, Thursday, and then we would work the whole weekend, Mm -hmm. uh, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And then each two weeks it recycles. So what we do typically like during the school year during the during the school year um because she the her daughter goes to school like a half hour away from where we live because we live where she works so what we will do is or what she will do is let's just say monday morning let, let, let's play for like right now so if let's say she had school monday morning they're already in summer break but let's say she had school monday morning she would wake up at seven or whatever it is take her to school which is like an hour away with traffic, come home, maybe get an, a nap in, go back to go to work at seven, work Monday, Tuesday, Tuesday after after work or Wednesday morning after work, uh, come home, get like a four hour nap, then drive to school, pick her up. And then she, so she basically would have like a 24 hour day with a nap in between. So like the, the first day off is wasted. Then the, then you have one normal day and then you go back to, to the, work schedule it's insane it's crazy and so many people i know work that like or uh if they work nights then they don't get that nap you know and they just stay up and they power through and before you know it they're working or they're awake for 48 hours straight or whatever exactly how i was yeah because i could never shut it down beforehand Mm -hmm. it's it's, (laughs) it's rough rough and then like so many things take a toll from that either you're obviously your sleep, but then your physical life, your, your mental health suffers from not getting enough sleep. And, and before you know it, you know, it it wears you down really quick when it goes unmitigated for so long. Definitely. So, uh, just something I thought about when you were mentioning it, obviously it's, you know, it's, it's a challenge dealing with four 11 year old girls having a slumber party, but you know, it could be so much more challenging given different circumstances. So, um, and you definitely understand it. So, uh, before we get too deep in the woods, I feel like we're already a little bit in the weeds anyway, but that's okay. Let's go ahead and get you to introduce yourself. Um, tell us who you are, where you're from, what you do, what you did, and, uh, we'll kind of go from there. Okay, sure. So I am in Boston and, uh, I, have been in the law enforcement mental health field for uh, probably like over 15 years at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, before I got on, I worked in military prison. I worked at a supermax correctional facility here in Massachusetts. Um, the military, the brig that I worked at was in uh, Miramar in California. Um, I worked at a in the ED as a social worker in Boston, uh, as a police officer. And then after I got medically retired, I uh, worked as a co-responding clinician with uh, Boston Police. Um, okay. I'm not sure if you guys have co-responding clinicians out where you are. Um, down here, I don't think we do. No. So basically, is that is that kind of like the social worker movement that they were pushing during yeah, the BLM so, thing? Yeah, but so it's been around here for a while. Um, definitely. The person who came up with it in Massachusetts is Dr. Abbott, and she, I think it was about 20 years ago, came and um, from England and was really super passionate about it and brought it into Framingham um, Police Department in Massachusetts, and that's kind of where uh, it began. And, yeah, so it's basically you have a master's level clinician who's embedded with 
the police. And Mm -hmm. sometimes those clinicians, depending upon if they're just hired independently through the department or if they're a associated with an ESP, so emergency service provider, Mm -hmm. um, they'll have access to different records. They can look people up. They can see if they have a history of whatever it is, you know, um, aside from doing an on-scene assessment of possible Mm -hmm. mental health needs or, you know, for me, I'm utilized citywide, um, specifically more so like suicidal, homicidal people in acute psychosis, um, Mm -hmm. as well as uh, my partner and I are on the Code 99 team, so hostage negotiation, barricaded subjects. Um, And so we'll go to everything, but we might more so get specifically asked to certain places to evaluate, you know, does a person need a section 12 or whatever that is where you are, pink slip, you know, a 72 hour hold to Mm -hmm. get a psychiatric evaluation. Um, For my Florida people, that's a Baker act. Just okay. Do they, do they, do they need a Baker act? Do they, Mm -hmm. you know, need, is there, should we be diverting jail or is that a necessity? So Mm -hmm. that type of thing. And so, is is that on like a call out basis? So they'll call you out, or you just no. always go into those types of calls? Yeah. So you're embedded in the cruiser. So you're in. Oh, it's okay. the same. You have a vest. You have a radio. You. Everyone just thinks I'm in the gang unit um, because you, oh, you don't. Nice. You just wear like plain clothes. So mm-hmm. you know it's kind of nice, yeah, because you can. So on the back of your vest, does it say mental health provider? No. And I, no, I don't, just, I don't just know. Yeah. And I don't really want it to say that, honestly, because of course, of course, I yeah. feel like, you know, it's super helpful in some situations. And in some, it's like, I don't ever bring that up, you know, because it's like, mm, mm-hmm. it depends on the person. You kind of have to like be able to assess that situation and, and know, like, is this the type of person that if, oh, I hate the police. Well, oh, well, actually I'm with I'm them, but guy. I'm not, yeah. I'm not anymore, you know, or like if, if I, you know, it's like you've, it's been so long, I could tell, you know, like, at this point, like, if I bring up something mental health related, it's a thousand percent going to be a problem because they hate all their right. providers and whatever. So it's just like, oh, you hey, can read yeah. the room. So to exactly. Speak. So you're kind of mm-hmm. like, hey, you know, it seems like you could really use some support. This is what we want to help you with, like, whatever it is. So yeah, no, it's hmm. not, it's not super advertised. So yeah, I've been doing that for the past few years. I got medically retired, unfortunately, off a uh, shoulder injury. That subsequently, I've had five shoulder surgeries and a cadaver bone with some screws in there. Um, it turns out not everyone wants to be arrested, and mm-hmm, they mm-hmm. will fight you. <laughs> so uh, yeah, so then you know, luckily before I got on, I had my master's and my license in social work. So I kind of just say that I, you know, transition from one side of the cruiser to the next. Mm-hmm. So now uh, I go around with my buddy, Artie. He just has to drive everywhere. Previously, uh, what else? I was on the SISM unit for a little while over here. And I just got done. I did another um, grad school certificate program for the past year that is a uh, in crisis response and behavioral health, which was pretty cool. It was a, the pilot program. So they took six cops and six clinicians from across the state. And so we did a whole bunch of different um, trainings, just de-escalation, different Milo trainings and ICAT stuff, which was really mm-hmm. awesome. Um, 
and uh, they have asked me to come on and help teach with them in the fall. So I will be doing that as well. Very nice. Very nice. So um, just so I understand, so in, in your role with the police department now, you are tip, you are primarily focused on helping citizens on calls for service, correct? As opposed to what? Like helping the, the cop side of it. Like, like do, you, do they utilize oh, you as okay. a oh, clinician oh, in the I police see. department? Uh, I mean, informally, right? Like, it's like mm-hmm. we always laugh that we're having, like, ongoing cruiser therapy. But, no, right, y- yes, I'm there in, in, that, in that role there to um, deal with the public. In my role as starting 5.0 Mental Health, my focus and my passion, which we can move into whenever mm-hmm. it's appropriate, is... Uh, for the first responder police military side. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So, so you are, you are well-rounded, but in your, in your job with the police department, it's, it's public bound. And then with five Oh, you're, you're on the other side. So, um, so you've been doing as the embedded clinician and then when and how and why did you start five Oh mental health? So last summer, I got an award at the Massachusetts Association of Women in Law Enforcement. Um, And after receiving that, I met with a bunch of the chiefs that were there um, and the superintendent of the sheriff's department and just kind of hanging out afterwards. And they were all like, your resume is so weird. You have all these different things. You have, you know, the prison side the mental health side, the police side, the hospital ED side, like you really should be starting a business and you know, mm. whatever. So I, it was like kind of brainstorming with them. And then I got together with them further and I've kind of, you know, it was just like developing like what kind of my passion was mm-hmm. for in terms and like kind of which direction I wanted to go. And you know, in our careers, I think we've seen, and I know, you know, me personally have just dealt with different things and seen a lot of guys that we know suffer from different mental health stuff in different ways, some of which ending in suicide, unfortunately. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it's just like enough is enough. We need to be doing better for people and quit talking about it and actually fucking do something. So, I'm, I'm working really hard here in Massachusetts to um, first and foremost implement uh, mandatory annual wellness checks. Ideally, it just goes into like one of your hours of yearly in-service mm-hmm. and um, you come in, you meet with me. Uh, you don't have to explain the job. I already get it. You don't cross that off off the, your mind as being get a problem. Get the checklist, yeah. Well, that's a lot of the the stuff right is like people in anything we do we have a lot of anxiety before we do something it's like the fear of the unknown right so part of it's like oh my god i'm gonna have to go here they're not gonna know what the hell i'm talking about Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. i don't want to have to try to explain this it's a weird job it's a weird culture it's a weird community like if you're not in it you know you don't the last thing you want to do is try to explain that so take that piece away um and i think a lot of the the fear around it kind of goes away so you know, that would be my first, the first hope. And then you just build that in, you normalize it. Oh, I'm, I'm going to go meet with Laura. Yep. Everyone goes from command staff down. Only thing they get back is a list of participants and 
you know, people have ongoing support. I think for me, um, something really important that I've discovered throughout, you know, over the past decade is SISM is great. It has its place. Peer support is great. It has its place. But both of those are reactive. We don't have enough proactive things within, mm-hmm. within policing. Um, and, you know, just shit piles up. And, and if you're catching it at home and you're catching it at work, it's like, where is your safe space to be? So having your work offer that to you and knowing, hey, I can reach out. I know there's resources there. And by the time something gets to peer support, shit has already hit the fan. Like it's, you know, and ideally mm-hmm. with some annual wellness checks, you know, people are able to offload stuff as it's progressing throughout their life, whether that's work related or home related or whatever it is. We don't have to wait until the point where, you know, our brother and sister officers are eating their guns or they're retiring and then six months later having a heart attack because they never dealt with their shit. My lieutenant, great guy, 22 years on, a couple of years ago, hanged himself. And it's just, it, you, nobody would have ever expected that. Nicest guy ever. I'd go in every day, talk to him about shoulders, because he also had shoulder surgery. You know, it's just like, I, I think in, in starting the Instagram and everything else and seeing all the messages, it's like, people want it. People mm-hmm. need it. We need to, like, cut the shit and, like, stop having, like, mental health first aid and all this other stuff that's, like, great and serves a purpose. But, like, let's stop having trainings about it and actually, like, get people talking. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a couple things to unbox with that. Um, I've been saying for a while now, probably definitely as long as I've been doing this past season of the show. But um, definitely since I left the road into uh, into left the road from law enforcement and kind of transitioned to where I am now. Exactly that, that. You know, it's not enough to have a critical incident, do a debrief, have EAP come in, have some kind of culturally unaware clinician come in and try to resonate with people that are already standoffish about it in the first place. Um, I've said I I had a gentleman on the show last year who was a integral part of his agency's officer wellness unit where they do things proactively like you're saying you know they do check ons um he's not he's not uh certified clinically in any way but he's taken a lot of um uh peer support type classes and just kind of using his own um knowledge at, at least not to my knowledge he doesn't know but um so they you know they check they get a daily list of calls that you know they need to check on people whatever provide resources when necessary but they also do proactive things like Hey, the, you know, they'll send out like a, a, I think it's a weekly or monthly email blast. Like, Hey, here's services in our area. Here's a, they bring in like oh, yoga okay. instructors. They bring in, um, you know, physical fitness people like, Hey, this today's gym day. And, you know, we're going to do a workout, whatever. Like they, they provide it that it's there. So what you're saying, and that is kind of mixed into the two. I know I'm part of my agency's, uh, SISM team and peer support. And I get frustrated because it's so reactive and I keep like, you know, I'm the new guy. So my voice is very quiet and I'm like, no, it needs to be proactive. Like, yeah, peer support. I get it, but it needs to be proactive. Like that's the problem is like, we don't catch it in time. And then it becomes a problem like you're saying. And you know, so I, I keep like, you know, banging on the door until someone opens it. But so hearing you say that gives me hope that, Oh, people get it. They just gotta, you know, gotta keep, 
uh, being that squeaky wheel. So when you do these yearly visits and evals, what what is that exactly? What do you do? Do you kind of just like kind of check in and be like, hey, how you doing? Or do you go deeper than that? I'm going to circle back to one thing first and then I'm going to go yeah, to that. Please. So also as being part of SISM, and like I said, I think it's great and it serves a purpose. My problem with that is that what what I deem as critical and what you deem as critical could be completely mm-hmm. different since, Very true. you know, trauma is in the eye of the beholder. I can't really determine, you know, I may have gone to a thousand hangings and it doesn't bother me anymore, but, you know, maybe I have a friend who just OD'd and died and I go to a typical OD and I lose my shit and I shouldn't have because, it, you know, why would I? Mm-hmm. And that's the problem. And, and I know, like, for over here anyways, like, you know, there's, like, that list of, like, ten things or whatever. It doesn't happen. It it does not happen. Like, I, I can count on, like, one finger <laughs> the amount of times that I've been told to go somewhere or I should or what. I, it doesn't happen. So, like, I just, I think it's great. I've been in, involved in diffusings that were great, but I also mm-hmm. think, like, it's not you know, unless it's like an officer involved murder, it's not really clear, like that things are going to hit everybody differently. So I just, you know, that goes again to the proactive versus reactive, but like, we can't really know what's critical for each, each of us, you know, I, before we go further than that, I just want to say that I've in my road career, I was involved in a couple SISM debriefings, but we didn't have an actual SISM team at that point. So it was literally, our sergeant or someone from command staff bringing in a clinician and going around the room and, you know, what did you do? What was your role? Blah, blah, blah. You know, the typical debriefing stuff. None of them were successful. None of them were good. And that's kind of what brought the passion within me to make it better, you know, and like you're saying. And um, I've yet to sit in on one with an actual SISM team, but I'm guaranteeing that it's not going to go over well because it's just – for my agency is too buddy buddy. It's literally like, hey, this this incident happened. Check on does anyone have a friend on this um this call? Can you can you reach out to him? And I'm like, oh that's not peer support. <laughs> like that's that's, yeah. that's being a friend. And like while that has its place too, that's not peer support. Yeah. But again, I'm the quietest voice in the room just because I'm kind of the newest voice in the room and it's frustrating. Yeah. Um as far as um I think that's that was kind of it is that, you know, it I get the purpose of SISM. I support it. I, you know, I believe in it, but you're right. I, f- I feel like I've seen too many times where it doesn't work, where again, you get, especially you get the older cops where they're already standoffish about it anyway, getting someone, you know, getting Dr. So-and-so who has no idea anything about law enforcement whatsoever. They're not going to open up. I've seen way too many times crickets in that room. And then we break down, we go to the parking lot with all the police cars, and then we have the debriefing. Like the real, like an informal one where we all just bitch about whatever is going on. Yeah. And I'm just like, where where was this conversation five minutes ago? And yeah. it's because it's not handled properly. Yeah, I agree with you. Okay, so what would I do? So first, uh, I have a one of these. Ooh, checklist. I like checklists. So it's basically talk, I, you know, and I've come up with this checklist. Obviously, there's a lot of different pillars to wellness and, and you can kind of teach their own. For, for what I'm focusing on, there's five different uh, sections, which are physical, spiritual, professional, personal, and mental. 
Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so for me, it's going through each of these um, points and asking each of these questions and then having a conversation about it. And, mm-hmm. you know, each person's going to kind of lead for where they are and what's more important for them to talk about. You know, it's like it's figuring out what what they want to talk about and kind of like letting them lead and meeting them where they are. And okay, then okay. Um, at the end, I have a bunch of it's this list is ongoing of resources of hotlines, outpatient and inpatient um, support systems, as well as my information. I mean, so I have just even through the Instagram the past couple of months, I've probably connected like over 10 people in Massachusetts, the therapists. Um, so that's the thing that's not frustrating, but I guess I should just look at it on the positive side. So the great thing is that I think people really do want it. Um, and it's just getting the departments on board because, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm asking, I'm asking the departments to bring me in. So they're, they would be funding me Mm -hmm. because that's how I think it should be. It's not on, it shouldn't be on individual officer. It should be on the departments to, you want to have retention. You want to have healthy people. Like let them, let them do the right Provide thing. Them, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like I put a thing up the other day. Like we take better care of our teeth than we do our mental health. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. And um, you know, <laughs> it's funny you say that. Like the hardest part about a lot of this is getting admin or whoever's in charge to to open the purse and pay a little bit. Yeah. I had this um, on my system team. You know, and I had the supervisor in charge of it. Saying he was on board was what I was saying. Like, so I put in last winter to go to this uh, mental health conference for first responders here in Orlando. I was told, oh, there's money in the budget. And then there was, no, there's no money in the budget for it. I was like, okay. Even though it was the beginning of the year, whatever. So oh, they're like, oh, we'll budget for it next year so you can go. Yeah, okay, whatever. And then <laughs> a few months later, oh, because I tried to do it, obviously, so I'm in dispatch now, and I tried to do it through dispatch. No funding for that, of course. But the SISM team had its own budget. So I was like, oh, perfect. I put it in. No. Go into a SISM meeting, and the commander goes, hey, we've got all this extra money in the budget for training. I'm like, where was this a few months ago when I put in for this training? <laughs> yeah. So I like, I kind of bit my lip, and I, I, I emailed him on the side, and I was like, hey, I've got access to all these great speakers and mental health people to come in. They just don't do it for free. Obviously, this is their this is their livelihood. Um, here's their list. I know all of them, you know, through Instagram. And I didn't tell them that because I kind of keep the Instagram <laughs> hush hush. But yeah. I was like, I know them personally to the point of I have their phone numbers. Like I can make this happen. Crickets. Sure. And I'm like, you guys are all about the talk, but don't yeah. actually want to put it into action. And it's so frustrating. Yeah. Same thing like what you're saying. Like, oh, you know, they're gonna say, hey, we want. We want better mental health resources for our officers, and you're like, "Cool, I'm here." And they're like, "Well, not like yeah. that." I didn't mean I didn't mean actually spending money for it, like you know. And that's where I get frustrated. It's like, come on, like, especially if you've ever like you like you alluded to had a department with an officer involved suicide. I I mean, you know, we we've talked so much about mental health being a, a crisis for law enforcement and suicide being being the number one killer of law enforcement. Let's do something about it. Like, like my agency, we lost somebody to suicide. So in my eyes, that should be a priority. Like, you know what I mean? Like we, I'm pretty sure have not had a line of duty death, like a murder at my agency, but we've had a suicide. So to me that it, not that obviously like safety training shouldn't change or anything, but that should put it in a priority of its own. 
and no one's jumping. And I feel like that's the common case throughout law enforcement throughout the country mm-hmm. is that, hey, the, you know, oh, officers were involved in a suicide. Yeah, we're going to, you know, we we may give them an officer funeral. I've I've been to a few that they haven't. Yeah, um, mine wasn't. You, the one you, I went to wasn't either. Yeah. Um, a lot of them, they refuse to accept it as a line of duty death, mm-hmm. um, which, again, I say is it definitely is. Um like, come on, let's start, let's start stopping just talk and start putting some action to it. Yeah, a hundred percent. So yeah, go ahead. No, no, I'm just, yeah, I agree with you. It's ridiculous. Yeah, I think or that... you have, or you have people who, um, do it in a way where it looks like it's an accident mm-hmm. so that their mm-hmm. family receives their pension. We had one of those recently. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and... I, yeah. I have um, a buddy of mine took his life, and it was it was in response to losing his law enforcement job, which was under questionable circumstances, and because of that, his parent his parents you know he's so young that didn't have a wife and kids he had parents his parents didn't weren't able weren't eligible for any kind of benefits or anything like that, and I you know they're they're working on making it a line of duty death they're trying to you know go through different legal channels and it's like i think in washington dc an officer that took his life after the january 6th thing they were able to make his a ptsd line of duty death thing and his family got benefits from it and i i I remember saying i posted it on instagram quite a while back uh about that an officer suicide should be considered a line of duty death period and then the pushback I, i couldn't believe that there was pushback but the pushback i got from the pub, you know, the people that read the post were like, "Oh, well, then people are gonna start killing themselves just for benefits." I'm like, "You don't understand mental health. That's no. not <laughs> that's not a thing." People aren't like, "Oh, well, my family needs more money." No, that's no one's gonna do that. Oh, um, I, didn't, I never thought about this before, but I guess now maybe I will. Yeah, yeah, no, that's 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 insane. I'm like, you know, we, and you mentioned it before about officers that retire and then they die six months mm-hmm. later from a heart attack, right? We don't think about you know we're always like oh we're gonna take care of each other thin blue line whatever first off that's a lie secondly uh we really stop caring after they're in law enforcement whether it be retirement losing their job quitting resigning whatever it is Mm -hmm. Uh, everything besides a criminal reason we should always keep track of our people that's that's what i've always thought uh if you leave the job for any reason um there should always be some trail behind you of people checking in on you, yeah. mental health services, whatever it might be. And to include if a former officer commits suicide, that should count as part of the line of duty umbrella. Um, and you're right. People mask it as accidental or even the, the survivors mask it as accidental because right. of the stigma that goes along with it. Yeah, I know. And, and I wish it was less like that because it's like, we're not helping anything out by, by not being open about it, you know, it, it just sucks. Cause it's like, it's looked upon as a weakness and, and all these other things. And it's like, it's, a, it's a mental health issue, you know, it's, right. and it, it can, there's been, I op- when I met with these 120 chiefs a couple of weeks ago, and then I met with, uh, maybe like 50, a couple of weeks before that, luckily I have some, support around what I'm doing. So I'm able to get into some of these spots. But my opening question to them was, how many people at some point in this room have contemplated suicide during your law enforcement career? 
Mm-hmm. And I knew not no one raised their hand because I know no one's going to own that. And then I said, how many people uh, in their law enforcement career have lost a brother, sister, officer to suicide? And pretty much everybody raised their hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and then like event, and then like through the conversation and talking about like one guy was like, oh, we have EAP, and I'm like, oh, you have expose and punish, okay? Because people mm-hmm. want to use people want to use that. I know I didn't. It, and I said, you know, or like, we only have peer support, like, people aren't gonna, I said, just like none of you owned that you've ever contemplated suicide, I guarantee you there's people in here who have, I said, you're, mm-hmm. n- you're not gonna do that with your peer, you're not gonna do that with EAP, because you're afraid to lose your job, it's not gonna happen. Right. Yeah, and you know, I, I, my thing with EAP is, or not, oh, well, I've got my own thing with EAP, but my thing with peer support <laughs> is, uh, you know, I'm on the team. Nobody knows me, except for the people in dispatch. Nobody knows me. And it's one thing to know someone. It's another thing knowing why they should trust you. And that's the biggest thing when, mm. when you're going to open up. Like, if I go back to my old agency, flashback two years when I was there, many people were comfortable opening up to me, especially when they found out that I did the 10-8 thing and it was big into mental health. Like, they, I had a guy. So my old agency had the officer-involved suicide, but before that we had an officer-involved murder where uh, someone was killed in line of duty. And... So all that, you know, and the, the the suicide was related to that. And the guy was on my shift and the rest of our shift all had considerable amounts of, you know, visible trauma response instantly. And I remember going back a few months after I had left the agency and one of my buddies who was a rookie at the time, like, like, and I mean, that was like six months between, but I mean, he was on for maybe a few weeks when this happened comes up to me and we're, we're at a gathering at a bar or whatever, which, you know, great place for cops to be. Right. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and he's like, you know, Hey, I just, you know, I just want to tell you. And he starts telling me about some mental health things that happened to him afterwards. And he's like, yeah, I've been listening to your podcast and I really appreciate the things you talk about, blah, blah, blah. But that was only after so much trauma bonding, really, that he felt comfortable talking to me about it. Yeah. No, you know, if you're starting a peer support team or if you're part of a peer support team, a random guy that works in the agency that you may never have interacted with isn't going to feel comfortable coming to you and opening up and really laying things down. And I think it really comes to telling these people and by these people, your coworkers, why they should trust you and why you're a person that should be talked to, not even just trust, like, you know, explaining your experiences or your interest in mental health. Like, you know, I've taken these classes, I've experienced this, I've gone through that. Um, because just like you said, you know, you don't have to introduce yourself as, hey, I'm Laura. I used to be an officer. I get what you're talking about. It's it's already like preloaded at that point, you know, and I think that's something that we really need to help with our profession. It's going to help people feel more comfortable talking to each other about it. And I've had a few supervisors throughout the years um, come out and say, you know, I've used therapy before. I've used whatever. And I think that opens the door a whole lot more. If you hear someone of a authoritative position, like a supervisor tell you, Hey, you know, whatever it is that helps. Cause you know, it's like, Oh, okay. This is, and next week on the show, I have one of my former sergeants is on and, and she was one of the ones that I was able to confide in because she did mm-hmm. the, that exact thing and said, you know, I've, you know, I've been in therapy. I'm going to school for therapy, blah, 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 blah. She's actually, she's since retired from the job and she's working as a social worker for a different police department. So like, yeah. So, I mean, 
things like that are great. And I think that all starts with kind of building these connections, talking to people, laying it all out on the line. Um, but if you're just going to try to do it like cold turkey, like, you know, we're going to cold call these people and tell them that um, I'm someone that you can trust and, and whatever, yeah. it's not going to work. It's not going to work. No, I agree with you. And that's part of, you know, me, I guess that's part of, I guess, like advertising myself for being the person who comes in is not having to go through that. But I will say um, also on like a personal level in, in starting this, you know, the five O mental health thing, it's made me in, in talking about this shit all the time now <laughs> is like really like I've had to change the course of what I talk about in therapy. I went to, I was at a shooting in October and my partner and I were the second people there and it was two teenagers and, uh, right away, like the kid agonal breathing, you know, everything like he was hit once in the eye, once in the mandible, like three times in the chest and knew like it was not, we were just trying to like get the information from him and the whole, you know, the whole scene takes place. It takes a long time. Everybody's out there for hours. And then, uh, we go back and my partner was like, Hey, I'm going to upload I'm going to upload the body cam stuff because homicide is going to need it. And so we were sitting at this point, it had been hours. We're sitting in the cruiser and I'm watching it. And like, all of a sudden I was like, <gasps> like, I felt like I couldn't breathe. Mm. I was like, holy shit. I like get out of the car. <laughs> I, I was like, totally like freaking out, which was so weird. I was like, what is going mm. on? So I go, home, I'm like driving home. And now, again, this is like 11 years in the cruiser, never once. I mean, you know, things can bother you. Things can not be great. But, like, I've never felt impacted like this way. And I just, like, started crying on my way home. And I was like, oh, my gosh, like, what is going on? And I realized when I got home, I had therapy, like, two days later or something. Um, and I said to my therapist, like, I have never talked about work in therapy because I mm -hmm. just automatically it's like goes into this category in my brain of like, that's work. Mm -hmm. right. right. Like I didn't even think about it as like, you know, like you go to, well, shit just melts in both ways from your home. When you're, when you're at home and things happen, you're bringing it to work. And when you're at work, things happen, you're bringing it home. And to me, I was so like, I just like delineated it and I never thought about it until like, literally and I'm in this field and I should know this and I never talked about it and I thought I was like okay and then I realized like I am not doing great and mm -hmm. uh so I had to like talk I had to like go through some things and you know after that it was just like other things from the past have kind of been like creeping up and you know I had been told before about the PTSD you know stuff so really for me, the past couple of months have been like trying to work into like dealing with some of that stuff, which is like crazy, you know, like new like, ground for you. Yeah. Like stuff you never. And my buddy was like, listen, like you gotta, you're, you're talking the talk. Now you have to walk the walk. Like you're doing right, all this stuff right. for other people and like trying to do these things. And now you actually have to like put yourself on blast and like do it. And it's like, <gasps> it sucks. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's like hard. Like it's like scary, you know, like it's crazy, but it's like, if I, I, I wonder too how it would have been like having some type of yearly check-in thing where like 
would have would I have operated differently? Would I be different now? Would mm-hmm. um, you know stuff like that? You know. Yeah, and w- the first thing that came to my mind is that cops, current and former. Uh, are serial compartmentalizers. Like, oh, yeah. it, we just do it without even thinking at this point. Mm-hmm. I, I've had conversations very recently, and, like, my relationships with people are compartmentalized. Like, you know, oh, you are a friend in this category. You're over here. You are a work friend. You're over here. And, like, mm-hmm. same with experiences and memories and things like that. And thinking about compartmentalization, I always I always use the analogy of a box, right? Like, oh, this happened, I'm going to put it in the box, put it in the closet, and we're, we're good. It's there. It's stored away. And every once in a while, the boxes topple out on you, and that sounds like what happened to you at, at this mm-hmm. shooting. And, and it was all your police boxes just falling on you at one mm-hmm. point. And, you know, mine have been slowly doing that. Um, I had, you know, when I decided to leave the job, leave the road, um, it was when they all fell on me at once, and they were, like, all fresh boxes. And then since then uh even in therapy i don't you're right i don't talk about old stuff that mm-hmm. bothers me i just i just don't because in me it's like oh, it's in the past i know it can't hurt me anymore mm-hmm. there it is but i still work in the industry so i know it's only a matter of time before something happens uh and and they topple and you're right being it's it's like uh doing this stuff on instagram and focusing on the mental health part of it um kind of now you've got secondary, secondary trauma that's coming in on you, but it's also like, it's related, right? Because you yeah. understand it, you've either been through it or, you know, you can easily relate to it. And something that I was thinking about earlier, um, when you were talking about your lieutenant that committed suicide, it's like when something like that happens, whether you're there and see it or not, you can see it because you've probably seen hangings before. So your mind already is like recreating it in your mind with what you're familiar with. And I, I know I'm, I'm guilty of that myself. And so it's like, you know, if you hear, it's hard for us to say it, but let's say you and I are two people that have never been involved in law enforcement, never seen a dead body before in our lives besides a funeral home. And you hear that someone you care about, committed suicide and you just go oh my god that's so terrible whatever maybe an image of what you might have seen in a movie at one point whatever but you don't know what it really looks like flip it to what we know and what we've experienced and like honestly like the grotesque look at some of these scenes we've been at and you're like oh like i don't want to imagine that person in that way right but you can't not you know and that's traumatizing too whether you responded or not we had a we had a young officer for a neighboring jurisdiction kill himself in our in my jurisdiction and I didn't respond. It was on Christmas Day. I was off, and you know my mind went to what you know what I didn't want it to. And then I was also on our crime scene unit. And one day I was just going through old photos and I found the photos. Like oh, I didn't want to see that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's just you know just grotesque stuff that is really unfortunate and that that cop brain of ours that knows things you know like you said like we were saying before we press record like knowing what the world is because we've seen it from the the front seat of a cruiser uh that goes with terrible things also um it's just it's it's rough it definitely is and and you're right those boxes they fall on you and you know kind of rearranges how we live our lives and and go to therapy and um none of us are um safe from that you know from the the boxes pile and like you said you're in the industry of mental health and you should know quote-unquote better yeah and it still crept up on you because still did you it. didn't even think about it no still did it the wrong way <laughs> yeah yeah and and you know i do things too and i'm like 
like I'm like I know better. Like you know, I I, I read all these books about whether it's like self help or or mental health or things like that. And when I screw up, I'm like, come on, you 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 know better. You're you're reading the cheat codes. Like you know how to do it, and, yeah. and you still you still mess up. I think that's just the human experience in us that that kind of gets us not jammed up. Well, it could get you jammed up, but you know, it's just kind of it creeps up on you when you're least experiencing or at least expecting it. Yeah. Um, it's just. It's rough. It's it's really rough, especially like when you're forced to look after yourself. You're so used to looking after other people mm-hmm. and, you know, helping. And then it's like, oh, crap, who who turned the tables on me? And now I have to focus on it. Right. How did it become my turn? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, no, no, no. I want to give the talking stick to somebody else. Yes. I'm good. I said that. I was like, this is why people stay in this job for 30 fucking two years is because if you take a break and you have that a little bit you have a perspective time away and then you do like the type of stuff that you and I are doing it's like oh, you know mm-hmm. it's like oh I my was, gosh I was talking to a, a a former cop um yesterday I think and he just got out because he felt like the job was killing him which it probably was at that point mm-hmm. and he's he gave a great analogy and I'm stealing it but everybody go check out pit to precinct he's the one that told me it he said when you're on the job you are constantly running you are running away from all the shit that's behind you. When you leave the job, you're suddenly walking and all that shit's going to come up from behind you and smack you in the ass mm. and it's going to knock you out. And he told me that he's experienced that and I don't know how long he's been on or off or whatever, but it happens. It definitely does. Like all that, that stuff from behind comes and gets you. And I think that's obviously that's happened to you. That's happened to me in the past. And I know, I know I'm waiting for that other sh- shoe to drop because I know it's coming. There's more back there. And it's you're right and i think that is why people stay on for as long as they do because they don't want to address it and then they don't address it and then that's how you get these you know high heart attack rates of people that uh retire and that's exactly why because all that stress comes at one time and it Mm -hmm. knocks them down yeah that and like every i think they say like you know every time you have an adrenaline rush the amount of like cortisol that surrounds Mm -hmm. your heart you should be like working out or doing something within like 45 minutes, which as we know is impossible. So imagine you have, you know, four or five, whatever adrenaline dumps in the same shift because you're going from one thing to another. And then it just, that adds up around your heart. So it's also like not, you know, doing that type of wellness too, like having the, the physical wellness too. But that's the other thing that's annoying is, you know, there's, there's a lot of places that I know, like you're allowed, you can work out on shift. And I think it's amazing. I think it's great. They're supporting that. And I think a lot of people should, but it's also like, then why are we not having mental health on our shift? Absolutely. There's a, uh, there's a place in Indiana. It's called pro team tactical. And they um, have physical trainers that they will install into police departments. And like, if you are injured on the line of duty, you will instantly go see a PT and they'll help work you out. Yes. And they also have clinicians on staff where there will be, there's a room and they, you know, they take over a spot in the PD, an office, and they will be on shift overnight or whatever it is. And you can just come in and talk. You don't have to sign a form, nothing, just come in and talk. And I think that's an an amazing resource too. Um, you know, just to kind of help along the way, kind of that it's proactive, but it's also like instantly mitigating things too, which we both know. And, and people listening probably know like trauma response isn't immediate. 
right? So like if something happens to you right now on shift, it, you may not be bothered by it immediately. So that's why I don't necessarily agree with having a SZA meeting immediately after an event or the day after, and then no checkup afterwards. I'm like, no, we need to check on them maybe a week. We don't want to pester, but we also don't want to forget either. Yeah. Um, and like there, that's a fine line where, you know, organizations need to kind of figure out what the thing is, but to just have that resource on staff on property, I think is an amazing thing is it's, you know, something that police departments need to focus on because before you know it, it's going to build up. So I, I agree completely. And if, if we can build in, like you said, working out on shift or, you know, whatever it might be, definitely some kind of mental decompression, I think is, is big too. Yeah. As soon as you make it something that just is just you just normalize it. This is what everybody does. Everybody does right, this, exactly. and this is what we do, and this is how we do it. Then that's it. Like, but it takes you know, it takes the brass to do that. You know, unfortunately, um, we can want that for each other and ourselves, but until we get buy-in from the brass, and then mm. there's a million like Department of Justice gives like a two hundred thousand dollar grant for this type of stuff like there's uh the credit union in boston two hundred and fifty thousand dollars for mental health like there's a Mm. million resources so like i don't want to hear a money excuse i think it's bullshit and i think that um although people may be resistant at first they'll also remember that it was never offered in the first place correct correct Uh, absolutely absolutely i think and that's where in the in the immediate, you know, people like you and I can be in police departments and, and try to get drum up the talk. And and I, I use the analogy of like the ripple effect and it can go. And eventually, I mean, that could be an entire wave of change. And that's kind of what it needs to happen, because like, you know, just having one whistleblower in an organization saying this is what we need probably won't do anything. But I think the more you kind of get that influence out there and people going, this is something we really need. Maybe we don't need. I don't know the bola wrap or whatever, you know, weird technology that came out. Maybe we don't need that, but we, we definitely need some more mental health um, check-ins at our agencies. Um, the other thing I really wanted to talk to you about you or with you today is, is suicide. Um, you know, it's obviously a very prevalent thing in our agents, in our profession and people don't talk about it period um we they really like skirting around it they like talking about it a little bit um in passing but they don't really dive into it enough and that's kind of where i want to go real quick so i took a my my city that i work at um did a lunch and learn i think a year ago where you know you go in for your lunch hour and hey let's talk about suicide great cheery topic but um (laughs) But it was it was important, and it kind of was in line with you know uh, mental first uh, was it mental health first aid or whatever. But you know people are not comfortable talking about it. It's not a cheery topic. You know I'm kind of expecting this episode to maybe not get a lot of listens just because of the topic, but it's important. That being said, when one of us is struggling, when one of us is feeling suicidal or anything like that. From your perspective as being, you know, in trauma, in trauma, um, in crisis response and things like that, what can we do? How can we help people? Like what, what can be done? I think the first thing is don't, is, is to not have a fear of asking someone that 
a lot of people think, oh, if I ask them, then what if they just decide to do it? Like, you're not going to put it in somebody's head. If they're going to thinking about that, then they're already thinking about it. So the first thing to do is to clarify it. Hey, are you having thoughts of wanting to kill yourself? And I would advise people not to say things like, you know, again, because they're afraid to just say the words. Don't say, are you thinking of harming yourself? Because if someone's suicidal, they don't see ending their life as being harmful. No, I'm setting myself free. I'm going to be great. Like, I'm not hurting myself. I'm about to end this pain, you know? <clears throat> so it's, it's being straightforward. Hey, are you, are you having thoughts that you want to kill yourself? And then, yes, I am. Or no, I'm not. Yes, I am. Okay, well, how, do you have a plan for it? How, how would you do it? Finding out more information. People could be suicidal. You can have suicidal fleeting thoughts or ideations. It doesn't mean you're necessarily going to act on it. Um, the time to get more concerned is when there's like a thorough plan. You know, oh, I'm going to go inside my cruiser at 4 p.m. after roll call and I'm going to take my Glock 23 and put it inside my mouth and go up to the end of Main Street where there's nobody and do it there. That's very mm -hmm. specific, right? Like that's... Yeah. That's something, you know, immediately that you need to do something about. But I think it's probably way more common than people want to admit or talk about. But I think the first step is just not being afraid to ask, which most people are, because they have that fear that they're going to put it in somebody's head. But that's just not accurate. Yes, there's um, I'm trying to find it. I'm going to find it probably after we talk at this point. But there's a. Uh... I think I want to say it was like the American society of suicide prevention or something like that. And they were saying like exact opposite of what you just said. And it, it bothered me um, about like things we don't say, you know, and basically taking the, the words like kill, hurt, harm out of the vernacular. And I'm like, no, you have to be specific in these moments. Yeah. It's, you know, because like you said, like don't mince words, it's the same thing where like, if you were going to go to a death notification of somebody on the job, you wouldn't say Tommy's no longer with us. No, right. you wouldn't, no. you know, something like that. You would be flat out. Hey, your son is dead, period. Yeah. And you have to, you have to do that. You have to rip the bandaid off. You have to say the hard words. You have to, it's going to be very uncomfortable. Um, because I think first off, that's going to make, that person that you're talking to feel the reality of the situation, feel the gravity of the situation that it's not because when we self-talk in our heads, the voices in our heads, the thoughts, it doesn't always compute the same way as when you hear it verbally out loud. So when you, when they're confronted with someone saying that, um, it's going to resonate differently in their brain. Like, you know, mm -hmm. like hearing those words said by somebody else, it, it does something differently. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's putting it in perspective, right? Right. Right. Like, I feel like these, you know, the, these, these folks that are having these thoughts and these ideas, they probably don't think about it from the outside. You know, they think of it, it's an internal struggle, it's internal pain, whereas it's obviously going to affect other people and by bringing another person into this conversation kind of makes it real for them. Yeah. Um, so I've I actually never talked about this live before really with many people, but at the beginning of my career, I was going through a lot of personal 
things that I found out that were happening uh, in my marriage and uh, super, super depressed right off FTO and uh, I'm 5'8". I'm usually like 155 maybe, you know. I was like mm-hmm. one, 125, like 120. I was so depressed. And uh, did I did that. I sat there with, with it in my mouth, like ready to go. Um, and it wasn't, it was more like I just couldn't see a way out of um, where I was at. And I, you know, I think the thing that kept me living was knowing that I had a kid that was like one. Um but it's a really, really terrible place to be. And it's not necessarily about wanting to die. It's more about not wanting to live the way that you're living or feel the way that you're feeling anymore, but not knowing how to get out of that. Um, but interestingly enough, I don't think there was, during the worst part of that, I don't think that anybody asked me if I wanted to kill myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish they would have. Uh, obviously, luckily, I didn't. But you know, also, I think that's why I have no fear in asking anybody that because I think honestly, it would have been a relief to have somebody say that. Yeah. There's, um, well, thank you for sharing that. There's, um, a documentary about, um, this guy who jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge and lived. And he is now a, a, a motivational speaker, things like that. And one of the things he said, was if someone had stopped him and asked him either that question or, Hey, how you doing? He probably wouldn't have jumped that day. Yeah. And you know, and obviously the moment he jumped, he regretted it, but that one question or, you know, one of those two questions would could have changed his entire situation. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's definitely been points in my life where, I mean, down, in the, in the trenches of rock bottom and feeling like there's no hope, there's no light and going like, you know, what, what is left, you know? And luckily I was able to kind of talk myself out of it because again, no, I mean, people go, Hey man, you good? Yeah, I'm fine. That's so easy to like brush off, you know? And like, I get the idea behind people saying, Hey, you good? But who actually answers that question? Honestly. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, and, and again, we were talking about like, we should know better. So when I'm not doing good and when people ask, Hey, you okay? Are you good? I try to give a little bit more, but again, it's in us to not want to burden people with our drama. So it's like, eh, it's, it's going okay, but you know, I'll get by it even though dying inside or whatever, like really having a true struggle. Um, I think that's, I I don't know. First off, I think that's the human in us, and I think that's the helper in us. Like, oh, no, no, no. We're supposed to take on other people's problems. We can't unload them to people. So, But you're right. Just by having that clear, confident, honest conversation with somebody can make the world a difference. And not only that, this is something that came up in that Lunch and Learn, is that when you're suicidal, and not even that, when you are just depressed to that point, you're not thinking clearly and logically. Those those parts of your brain are gone. The The fight or flight instinct has taken over and mm-hmm. that is all they're thinking. They're thinking, how do I get away from this scary moment? And the the lady that was giving the talk, um, she's 
I think she was a doctoral student and she had done a study on herself <laughs> and she was like, when she was, she was having a suicidal moment, suicidal ideation moment. And she got out of it, but she like quickly called up her doctor and was like, do a blood draw, <laughs> do a blood draw. So she did. And she was deficient in B12 hmm. and something. And she said something to the effect of, and this isn't scientific data cause I have no data, but she had said something to the effect of like, when you're suicidal or when, when your B12 is low, you're more likely to have those thoughts. And so mm. that moment for me was like, it kind of pushed the whole eating right thing. Cause it was like, Oh man, like I didn't, I honestly had no idea what vitamins even do, but they always tell you to take them. Right. <laughs> so I was like, man, if like, it's going to have that big of a impact on your brain, like you were at Costco cr- the next day buying the biggest amounts of vitamins. B12. <laughs> yeah. I was just taking, yeah. My, my, my B complex vitamins is off the yeah. charts, man. Um, <laughs> But no, like, you know, things like that, you know, so you're not thinking clearly. And the analogy I always use is like, if you're in intense pain, you just broke a finger, you just whatever. And you, someone asks you for your birth date, like, you're not going to be able to respond because you're so focused on the pain Mm -hmm. that something simple that you know, isn't easy. Just like when you're in intense pain and you want to kill yourself, the thought of don't do it because you have a family and friends that care and love about you is not in your brain, it's not, you know, you're not thinking logically and that easy information is just not there. But when you have one person break that cycle, that, that cycle of negative self-talk and the negative thoughts, suddenly it's like, it's like when you have like a, a circuit, right? You break that circuit, it can't keep going in that same spindle. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I think too, it's like for me now to just like at work, I, I asked that question I feel like daily, you know, like it's become, I, I, it's like normalized for me. At this point. That's good. You though. Know? That's like really it's, good. It's like, but that, that's like, that's what we're dealing with a lot at work too. So it's like you, for me, it's like just taking that. I've had to say that to, you know, people I'm close with as well, unfortunately, but I think also having so much experience doing it at work, it's like, mm-hmm. it's the same. I need the same information so I can figure out a way how to support you right now. You right. Know? Yeah. My, my big thing is um, it, it's good that it's normalized to that. I re- I was asked that. So I was in training and to go back to the road for my new agency and my training. Instru- I, it was the day that I decided to leave the job and my training instructor asked me cause I was having mental issues and he asked me flat out and I was insulted because it hadn't even crossed my mind at that point. I was like, dude, I'm, I'm having a bad day, but not like not that bad of a day. And, yeah. um, but you can't take it personally. And that's, that was the biggest thing is like, you know, I was bothered by it, but it, you know, water off my back. I was like, yeah, whatever. Like I, I understood what he was trying to do. And I think that's the other thing is that people don't want to ask that question because they don't want to insult somebody. I was like, bro, they're not going to be insulted because you give a shit. First off, like they're going to, you know, they, they may be like, oh, how could he ask me that? But eventually when, when logic comes back to their brain, they're going to be like, oh, it's really cool that they cared enough to ask. Yeah. Um, and I think, I, I think uh, kind of the prevailing thing with us here, what I've noticed throughout this conversation is like normalizing. That's the biggest Mm -hmm. thing is normalizing conversations like these. Like for me, you know, my buddies that I was involved with stuff with, uh, you know, we're, we're not local anymore. So my biggest thing with them is to always be like, Hey man, how's your mental? Like, Hey, what's going on in your brain? How you feeling? Um, you know, I ask that, how you doing? But then I go like, how are you really doing? And we're so normal with it now. Like 
my my one buddy, big tough guy, muscles, tattoos, you know, military vet. He's got no problem being like, "Today's a pretty shitty day," and then then we then we unbox. So first off, if you again talking about that ripple effect, if you can get used to doing that with your friend group, with your buddies, the people that you do trust. Imagine how that goes when you start making that your culture and your agency or your just, hey, if you're going to be friends with Laura, these are questions you got to expect to come from her, you know? <laughs> and, hey, if you're going to work with Laura, this is what happens. And it's not weird. It's just making sure that we all go home and we stay home. You know what I mean? Like, 100%. And I, and I think, like, it's such being on the job. Like, I, I don't think it matters if you're in a bigger city like Boston or wherever you are. Like, you're going to have people who are going through it and – who need that support and I don't know how else you're going to properly figure out what they need without asking those questions. Absolutely. And so you're right. It doesn't matter. You know, and I've, I, the beauty of Instagram, Instagram's a dirty place, but the beauty of Instagram <laughs> is all the people I've talked to from all over the country, even the world at this point. And I, I'm so fortunate that they feel trusting in me, someone who they've never met, most of the time don't even know my face and will tell me things that like to unbox them. And what I've learned is you're right. It doesn't matter if you're in a big city or a five person agency in the middle of nowhere, shit happens everywhere. And you know, it's, it's heavy and it's, it's less heavy once you start sharing the load with somebody. And I think that's the important part is being comfortable to share that load and kind of discuss it with people and, I think that's the biggest thing. I've had some people that I've talked to who were very open about like, Hey man, like I, I almost killed myself. Like I was, I was there and you know, they sought help, whether it's from something I had said or just, you know, realizing whatever it might be. And it's, 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 it's an amazing feeling to hear that from someone, you know, that they, they chose another route. Um, it's, it's something that we need to, celebrate you know mental wellness and and physical wellness of course but mental wellness needs to be celebrated and facilitated and i feel like we're you know pages like you like i I was thinking about it you know when i first started linking up with you and seeing your posts i'm like oh my god it's amazing someone else gets it and then like peeling back the layers of that onion and seeing that there's this whole side of like police mental health and in that culture like you're wearing uh the overwatch collective shirt and i'm like when i learned about them you know i'm like oh these these are people out west doing what i want to do like provide and provide providers you know and like tell people Mm -hmm. it's out there and get the information it's just great that this is where the the culture is kind of going and i love everything about law enforcement kind of um but like the job (laughs) itself right like you know the the tactics the driving the investigating i love all that great yeah in the same breath we need to start putting mental health into it and like that just needs to be part of it like in the police academy there needs to be a mental health class there needs to be like hey a resiliency class this is you know hey this is let me teach you about your brain. Like this is the stuff that your brain does. And here's how you keep it healthy when bad shit happens. Like, and and then also here's how we support you in doing that along the way. Correct. 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 In my, in my Academy, it was, Hey, bad shit's going to happen to you. Don't drink too much. Get a hobby. That was it. That was the end of the discussion. And I just remembered that for the entirety of my career. I was like, okay, this is all the bad shit. Don't drink too much. Okay. And I got hobbies, but it, I'm still depressed. I don't know. I don't know what else to do. Like, 
So, but I think we're getting there. I think we're getting there. I know that like NYPD, they have in their police academy, um, mental health. They have their own officer wellness unit and they teach resiliency and stuff like that. So I hear it coming. It's, it's exciting. Um, but we just got to get over this hump, which, you know, slowly, but surely Yeah, little little engine that could, (laughs) we'll get there. It's a, it, it takes a long time to get things to change, but you know, for me, I've I've already seen some changes. I have a couple uh, departments. I'm just waiting. I'm at the end of they've put in for the um, the grants and everything. So there's about three that are pretty decent size. So I think too, once I'm in there and I start working in there, mm-hmm. then that will kind of spread, um, hopefully, and then see it's like it's not going to fail. Giving people an outlet, giving people right. wanting people to be more mentally healthy, like. How it's never going to be a bad thing, right? Like, right, right. I think the uh, thinking from like a business standpoint, right? Because a lot of chiefs and sheriffs and all that, they're thinking from like a business manager. The ROI, the return on the investment of that, yeah. is is infinite, right? 100%, Same thing, yeah. like when you get a dope officer and he makes a big fentanyl arrest, right? You're never, you can quantify that. You can quantify the amount of dope he sees, but you can't quantify how many lives he just saved. Mm-hmm. Same thing with mental health and having a mental health side of your law enforcement. You can quantify like, Hey, we have Laura and it's going to cost us X, Y, Z dollars. Cool. You can quantify that, but you're never going to be able to quantify the number of people that are saved by having a place to talk to healthily or in a healthy standpoint. And I think that's something that a lot of people need to realize is like, it's not, it's not going to fail. It's never going to fail. So it's say it's a safe investment and the return on investment is people's lives which is amazing right that's we're in the, we're in the business of protecting lives yeah. why not start with ours right you you're, we're at everybody else's worst fucking day like you got to show up for your own you know absolutely that's that's very well said um the last the last part of this topic i want to talk about is in the event in the tragic event that we have someone that we work with a brother or sister who does take their lives how, what kind of support, what kind of help can we provide to those survivors, the ones that, you know, are left with it? What, what would you say, like, if, if, if I was an officer, or I, I am an, a former officer that was, had a buddy take his life, what can, what can you do to help? Well, I'd be, I want to answer, but I also, I'm curious to know what you did. Um, well, I was in a precarious situation because I didn't work there anymore. And so I got a call from a former sergeant who told me about it. And I was kind of left to my own devices. Mm-hmm. Um, I did, I, I told the story a few times, but I don't mind telling it again. I was on my, I was a day off. I was on my way to a haircut, went there and I just kind of like kept saying it like to people who may or may not have known the guy. I was like, Oh, you know, like my barber, I got a haircut on my barber who, was from the area. I told him, and he's like, Oh, that sucks. He didn't know the guy. Like, you know, exactly yeah. what I was saying before. Like when you hear about it, you don't know about it. It's just kind of like, Oh, that's, that's really bad. Told family, whatever. And then I just kind of ruminated with it for a few days. And it wasn't yeah. until someone sent me a text message with his funeral arrangements that it hit me. And that's when I left the job. So like, and it was literally, it was a spiral after that. Like I went to his funeral. I, um, kind of hung around my old town for a little bit <clears throat> afterwards. And it's only now, well, first off it, it, it triggered everything I'm doing now. Like it triggered okay. me going back to school for mental health. It 
triggered me joining peer support. It triggered all those things, right? Like it, it really reprioritized things in my life. Like mental health became the thing. Um, but as far as like immediate support, I didn't really have any. Um, I, I called EAP and it was useless. <laughs> um, I called EAP and they gave me a list of service providers and none of them were still in network. So they wouldn't work with me. And like, I called like three of them and I got so frustrated that I'm like, I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah. Like, and you're defeated or they don't call you back. And you're like, mm-hmm. I just got just... the balls to call. Like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. And now, and now I'm going to get so frustrated because nobody's yeah. returning my phone call. And I'm like, I mean, the way I was, I was like, no, this is a sign, you know, and this was, this is in October. <laughs> this is this was in October. And then by November, by Thanksgiving, I was in, like I said, in the trenches of rock bottom. I was not doing good. Um, it wasn't until that what I had told you about, um, when I was at the bar with a bunch of buddies lifted me out of that, just the camaraderie of being back in front of people yeah. of those people. Um, and then like, it's been kind of a roller coaster. like someday, or I mean, it's been almost two years now, but some has been really good and some days have not been really good and, you know, just kind of fluctuating with it. Um, definitely eventually finding a therapist and, you know, working with him and kind of getting through that has helped, but mm-hmm. I know that like for me, what I did need or, you know, um, the biggest thing was like the feeling of helplessness, right? Like, like you said, um, it was, it was a buddy that was jovial, joking, great time. Um, I really didn't even know him all that well at that point. Cause we had worked together for a little while and then I left, you know? And when I went to his funeral and hearing his parents give his eulogy, I was like, fuck man, we were like the same person. Like it, 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 that got me really bad. Like his mom described him and his mom and I have become close friends and we talk a lot. Um, me and him were, were very similar, loved our families, loved baseball. Like, you know, we, we very similar, like came home every weekend for, for a family dinner, whatever, like stuff that I did. Yeah. And, um, Hit so what I, home. it did, it did. And like what helped was, friendship, family. Um, but what I needed was to know that like that defeated feeling I had that, that, that feeling of loss as in like I failed him was not my fault. Like, you know, like nothing I could have done could have intercepted that. Um, and that's, I I feel like, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like in these situations, that's one of the biggest things you need to do is not blame yourself for either not being enough, not knowing what to say, whatever it is. Like, you know, what we were saying earlier, like, yeah, you can ask the question and save it, but if you don't, you're not at fault either. A hundred percent. And I, similarly, like I felt that way about the Lieutenant as well. Like, I'm like, I'm, I have my masters in this. Like, how did I not see that this fucking guy could potentially hang himself. I had no clue. Mm. Nobody did, you know? Um, So I think, but there was probably many people in his life who felt that way, way. you know? So we'll, we'll never know. And it, it really sucks because I think, you know, at the end of the day, there are, unfortunately, there's going to be people that, um, die by suicide, you know, and it's, it's good. It's going to happen and they're, they're going to do it. And I think that, um, a lot of that though can be helped or ideally stopped along the way by having 
things within your institution that give people that space and that time to process the stuff that I was going through wasn't even work related at that time. It was house related. There was a a guy recently, I think it was in New Jersey who uh, ate his gun a block away from his house. It's like, did, did you not want to go home or did you not want to go to work? Like, where was Mm -hmm. it? Or was it both? Mm -hmm. Were you catching it on both ends? It's like, and it's so sad, you know. There was another guy that they admitted to the hospital for psych that. issues, and then he brought his pistol in with him. Like, yeah. it's just—it's unbelievable. I keep putting these things like, how many more of us have to kill ourselves before something fucking changes? And I don't know what the number is, or what the answer is, or when people are gonna wake up. But um, I'm hoping that we can, like we said, normalize this shit and make it you know, a common thing within departments and, you know, ideally we catch things along the way and not too late or not when stuff is crazy and we're trying to get people, you know, cops out of like OUIs and all this other craziness because people are so messed up that they're making these terrible decisions, you know, so. Right, right. And, and that's, you know, something I've talked about in the past too. Like they're all symptoms of the same problem. Uh-huh. And like, um, I had a guy on, he's a former cop from New Jersey, lost his job over drinking and drugs and stuff. And that was a symptom of his mental health issues that he was dealing with. And so many in, and he was on the show, so I'm not sharing anything that hasn't been shared before, but, um, in his, in the whole process, he was let go by cops that had stopped him for for operating under the influence i think twice or three times and it was only the third time that it came back to get him and it's like you know if the first guy had stopped you know if he had gotten arrested the first time it sucks but think of the alternative think of what might have been the thing right we're Um, like our own worst enemy of course of course Yeah. yeah and it's like it's tough because you don't want to jam up another cop especially if he has a wife and family and you know obviously the job is going to give get bills or you have bills to pay and things like that and it gives you money for that. But it's like, I'd much rather be well than employed. You know what I mean? And that's really what it comes down to. And I've been saying for months now, like jobs going to go on without you take care of you first, you know? And it's, um, you know, I think the biggest thing is, is not assigning guilt if it does happen. Um, and really focusing on, learning from that situation. And that's what, that's what frustrates me is like what I was saying earlier, like you have an agency that loses an officer to suicide and then does nothing to change it. does nothing to help the next guy. And it's like, what are we doing? You know, are, are we not learning from this? Don't let this, this person die in vain. You know, let's, I don't want to say use him as a learning tool, but realize like we need help here. And you know, obviously you, you've been on this path. I've recently got on this path because of things that have affected me. And, you know, I know that there are people out there who are doing the same thing. They're feeling motivated by the culture and where it is. And it's amazing. And I think that we're going to get there eventually. Um, I just wish that I wish it was quicker, you know, uh, I'm, I'm working myself one of my own personal, um, struggles is dealing with like the process of things. Right. And like, I want instant results, instant gratification. Like, you know, so I want, I want the culture to be fixed now. Obviously it's yeah. going to take longer than you that. You and me but... both. 
<laughs> but I think, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're getting there. I think, you know, there's, there's a lot of great resources out there. Like I said, I didn't really even know that there was a police mental health side of Instagram and it's all over the place. And it's great. I, mean, I didn't either. And it's only for me, it's been like, what, how five months or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I've yeah. done it. And I, I said the same thing. I was like, Oh shit. All right. There's a lot of people out there who are like trying to do the right thing. And in my opinion, and you know, who are looking for different things and looking for resources. So it's also something I'm, trying to do is like provide different resources across the country and just like have collective voice things, you know? So Mm -hmm. like just asking those questions and people sending things over or whatever, just we're not as alone as we think that we are. Right. Correct. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's the most important thing is I think we feel so alone all the time and, and that's not the case. It's not the case. There's plenty of people out there that get it and that want to help. So I think that's, amazing and the one last thing that you had said that i just want to kind of end on is like if if we lose someone to suicide right like it's it's a tragedy of course but it's not your fault it's not like you failed or whatever it's kind of like think of like a drug addict or an alcoholic that doesn't want to go to rehab like it's got to be their decision like they've you know and same thing with suicide it's it's someone's decision and it's you know you can pull and it goes to the this the phrase that i've used before is like be a lighthouse you can't be a tugboat like you can show them where to go but you can't force them it's not going to work and uh, unless of course you're going to like tackle a gun out of someone's hand or something but that's that's way more hollywood than than reality um well the thing is is you can never want it for someone more than they want it for themselves very well said yes absolutely and i think you know more conversations like this will will help us all along the way so um laura i think that's that's kind of all i wanted to talk about today i really want to thank you for your insight on this um i think this was a good conversation hopefully people listened and took it took it a lot to heart uh if people want to get in contact with you if they want to learn about what you're doing and things like that how do they get in contact with you yep so instagram Five O mental health five. What is it? Five dash zero or five is it underscore on there? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I think uh, it's... Five underscore zero underscore mental underscore health. Yep. So there's that. <laughs> uh, and then there's the website five O mental health.com. And then, or you could email me at Laura at five O mental health.com. I have LinkedIn, but eh, I don't know. Yeah, it's, kind of, I, I it's don't too much. It's too heavily like there's a lot going on. So yeah, LinkedIn's weird, and it's always like, ooh, someone from the automobile industry looked at your profile. Do yeah. you want to spend a lot of dollars to figure yeah. out who it is? Yeah. Like, no, do you need doesn't... Do you need a seventh job as a you know whatever? Like, no, I don't actually. <laughs> right. Do you Do you want to work in Amazon? No, I don't. <laughs> what is it? And like, I I specifically have my my industry on there, and they're like, oh, well, you can install plumbing. No, you can that's, do get, yeah, get the vry off of my suggested <laughs> thing. I don't. Understand. Thank you for seeing my inner talents, but I have zero desire in doing that. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Uh, Laura, this is great. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you uh, for having gonna, me. Absolutely, we will talk again very soon. Everyone listening, stay tuned. We will wrap up in just a moment. At the age of 17, I developed bipolar disorder, a very severe form. It nearly uh, cost me my life and nearly destroyed my family. 
my parents were in the middle of getting divorced at the time. Uh, it was a tumultuous time for my life as a teen. And I believed uh, that I was the only one under that cloud. But that's, that's so far from the truth, so far from fact. 50 million people around the world diagnosed mentally ill. Uh, so many more undiagnosed, but that had the diseases that are in their brains. I don't want to have this disease. I don't want to be flawed. Bipolar disorder, that's not me. I was a wrestling champion in the WCL League in, 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 in California. There's no way. My football team went to state, this is garbage. And I, I was in so much denial. And that denial ruled the day until I crashed hard. And it was September 24th when when it all came to a head, I sat at my desk and I penned that note. Mom, dad, brother, sister, girlfriend, best friend. Love you, but I gotta go. I was gonna go to the Golden Gate and I was gonna disappear. I thought I was my family's burden. I wish I asked them. I just wanted the pain to stop. That's the common denominator of people we lose to suicide. They just want the pain to stop. What they don't realize is that their thoughts don't have to become their actions. Their thoughts don't have to take over. If you can recognize those thoughts as flawed and illogical, because suicide is an irrational state of mind. You think you have to die, but you don't really want to. You know, I found myself in my father's room that morning. I startled him awake. He looked at me, said, Kev, what's wrong? Like with parental instinct. I said, uh, nothing, dad. I just want to tell you that I love you. It's for the very last time. And, you know, he goes, I love you too, Kev, but it's six in the morning and I don't gotta be working till nine, go back to bed. I walked around to the other side of the bed, I sat on the carpeted floor and I rocked myself back and forth in tears, begging myself to tell the one man who loves me the most in the world the truth, but the voice in my head said, be quiet, Kevin, you have to die. And that's what took me to the Golden Gate that morning. I took a bus there and on that bus, all I wanted to do was scream, and beg for help and live. But the voice became so loud. I sat on that bus in the back row, middle seat. I'm crying my eyes out like a baby, mucus dripping from my nose, people staring at me now. Then I'm yelling aloud at the voices in my head. I desperately wanted someone to say, are you okay? I would have told them everything. Fear, apathy. There was a guy to my left said to the fellow next to him while pointing at me with his thumb, what the hell's wrong with that kid with a smile on his face? Apathy. That's his or her problem, but it ain't mine. The bus got to the bridge. I sat there crying. Bus driver turned. He stood. He looked at me and he said, kid, come on, get off the bus. I got to go. I walked across the walkway of the Golden Gate Bridge for 40 minutes, up and down, back and forth, crying like a baby. Bikers, joggers, tourists, runners, they all went by me. Police officers searching for suicidal people went by me twice. I'm leaning over the rail, crying like a baby. They went by me twice. Nobody cares. And the voice in my head said, jump now, and I did. At the millisecond that my hands left that rail, instant regret for my actions and the absolute recognition that I just made the greatest mistake of my life. You know, falling head first, right in my body accidentally, landed in a position that wouldn't kill me. On the way down, I said to myself, what have I just done? I don't want to die. God, please save me. And I hit the water. 
I went down 70 feet beneath the water's surface, but I opened my eyes. My legs, I couldn't move. I had shattered my T12, L1, and L2 lower vertebrae into shards like glass. I had missed severing my spinal cord by uh, two millimeters. I swam to the surface only using my arms. When I came to the surface, bobbing up and down in water, swallowing salt water, kept going down, couldn't stay afloat. A woman driving by in a red car saw me go over and she called her friend in the Coast Guard. The reason the Coast Guard got to my body within less than the time I would set in hypothermia and drown was because of that woman making that phone call. The Coast Guard arrived. They fished me out of the water, they put me in a flatboard, they put a neck brace around my neck, and they started asking me a bunch of questions. Guy looks at me, he leans in, and he says, kid, do you know how many people we pull out of this water that are already gone. And I said, no, and I don't wanna know. And he said, well, I'm gonna tell you, this unit has pulled 57 dead bodies out of this water and one live one. I looked up at my dad and I said, dad, I'm sorry. And he looked down at me and with great conviction, he said, no, Kevin, I'm sorry. And waterfalls flew from his eyes. He put his hand on my forehead and he said words I've never forgotten. Kevin, you are going to be okay, I promise. And that got me through the night. Now I had this opportunity to recover. And a lot of people think that I went from this incident and was like, oh, I'm so much better now. You know, oh great, it's all gone. No, this was just the beginning. In the first three psych ward stays, involuntary, forced in against my will. But those next four, I found self-awareness. I found the ability to say, I'm gonna accept that I have this disease. I'm gonna fight it tooth and nail. I'm gonna beat it one day at a time. And that's what I've been doing. Exercising every day, eating healthy most days, educating myself about bipolar disorder, being able to utilize all of those things, work them into a regimen, a routine that helps keep me here. The common denominator of recovery from mental illness is routine. There are so many things we can do that are not clinically based for all the people that don't get clinical care. If you can train your body and your mind to wake up at the same time, go to bed at the same time, take your pills at the same time if you're on medication, which helps some people and not all. Train your body and mind to eat at the same time, roughly within a two hour period every day. Work out even as simple as 23 minutes a day, that leads to 12 hours of better mood. Your eight second hugs wherever you can, eight second hugs release endorphins in the brain that make you feel better. I thought that I had one chance, one choice, and one burden to take care of. I had to die, and I was wrong. Learn from me. Know that your thoughts don't have to become your actions. You were not meant for this world to leave it by way of suicide too soon. But one thing you can never do, one thing you should never do is silence your pain. I silenced my pain for years. I buried it deep down inside me like so many people do and I lost myself and it came out in a burst of rage against myself that led me to attempt to take my life. I want you to learn from me. 
Suicide is not the answer and you deserve to be here for you. But your pain is valid, your pain is real, and your pain matters because you do. No matter what you think about how you aren't valued or you're worthless, it's not the truth. You have to find a way to turn back to logic. Logic says that I do get to live. You matter. You're beautiful. We need you. Please be here tomorrow. If you're in need of suicide services, you can dial 988 or you can call Copline 1-800-267-5463. 1-800-267-5463. Guys, I really don't have much to say to end the episode. If you are suffering, there is assistance. If you see someone suffering, help them. Something Laura said at the end of our conversation that I want to just circle back to. We are so quick to run to the needs of perfect strangers but when ourselves or our brothers and sisters need help, we don't help. Suicide is the number one killer of law enforcement officers. To date, according to firsthelp.org, 42 law enforcement officers have killed themselves in 2023, compared to 25 by gunfire from bad guys. While law enforcement is not alone, our numbers tower over other disciplines of first responders. Nine firefighters, five paramedics, and two dispatchers so far have taken their lives this year. It needs to stop. Our agencies need to do better to provide us resources and take care of us. Our brothers and sisters need to look out for each other. But most importantly, we need to take care of ourselves. You have to be your own advocate. Eat right, work out, have healthy coping mechanisms and stress releasers. All season I've talked to different first responders who have battled their own mental demons. They all found salvation through many different ways. We can and we will get better. Don't wait until you're in crisis to seek help. Help yourself now. Eat right, sleep properly, work out, talk to somebody. In the words of one of my favorite bands, Patent Pending, from their song, One Less Heart to Break, it's the ups and downs of living life this way. Promise me you'll never go away. Just stay with me through one more night because it's always darkest before the light. And now I promise you I'll never turn away. I won't let you give us one less heart to break. Thanks for listening this week. Share this episode with someone you care about. And hug the people you love. Next week we have Aaron Lohman, Kelly Fishpaw, and Lamont Quarker for our second to last episode. Changing the game, the future of law enforcement. Until then, seriously, take care of each other and stay safe. 10-8 out.
46 million people on the planet and most of us have the audacity to think we matter. Hey, you hear the one about the comedian who croaked? Someone stabbed him in the heart. Just a little poke. But he keeled over because he went into battle wearing chainmail made of jokes. Hey, you hear the one about the screenwriter who passed away? He was giving elevator pitches and the elevator got stuck halfway. He ended up eating smushed sandwiches they pushed through crack in the door and repeating the same crappy screenplay idea about talking dogs till his last day. Hey, you hear the one about the fisherman who passed? He didn't jump off that ledge, he just stepped out into the air and pulled the ground up towards him really fast Like he was pitching a line and went fishing for concrete The earth is a drum and he's hitting it on beat The reason there's smog in Los Angeles is because if we could see the stars If we could see the context of the universe in which we exist And we could see how small each one of us is Against the vastness of what we don't know No one would ever audition for a McDonald's commercial again And then where would we be? No frozen dinners and no TV, and is that a world we want to text in? Either someone just microwaved popcorn or I hear the sound of a thousand people pulling the heads out of their asses in rapid succession. The people are hunched over in Boston. They're starting app stores and screen printing companies in San Francisco. They're grinning in Los Angeles like they got fish hooks in the corners of their mouth. But don't paint me like the good guy, because every time I write, I get to choose the angle that you view me and select the nicest light. You wouldn't respect me if you heard the typewriter chatter tap tap tapping through my mind at night. The same stupid tape loop of old sitcom dialogue and tattered memories of a girl I got to grind on in high school, filed carefully on rice paper. My heart is a colored pencil, but my brain is an eraser. 
Tracer. I don't want a real girl. I want a Tracer from a catalog. Truth be told, I'm unlikely to hold you down. Cause my soul is a crowded subway train and people keep deciding to get on the next one that rolls through town. I'm joining a false movement in San Francisco. I'm frowning and hunched over in Boston. I'm smiling in Los Angeles like I got fish hooks in the corners of my mouth and I'm celebrating on weekends. Because there's 7 billion, 47 million people on the planet and I have the audacity to think I matter. I know it's a lie, but I prefer it to the alternative because I got a tourniquet tied at my elbow. I got a blunt rep filled with compliments and I'm burning it. You say go to sleep, but I've been bouncing up my bedroom wall since I was hecka small. Where every agent once had tucked inside ourselves like Russian nesting dolls. My mother is an 8-year-old girl. My grandson is a 74-year-old retiree whose kidneys just failed. And that's the glue between me and you. That's the screws and nails. We live in a house made of each other. And if that sounds strange, that's because it is. Someone please freeze Tom so I can run around turning everyone's pockets inside out. And remember, you didn't see shit. <laughs>